If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. Welcome to the state opening of Pod Save the UK. Yes, I've travelled to the studio in a golden horse-drawn carriage. My baseball cap had a separate vehicle. And I've accessed the studio by banging on the door three times with a big black rod. No, I'm not talking about an East London crowbar. Yes, you've guessed it. We'll be discussing pomp, pageantry and the politics of the King's Speech. Also, is Labour tearing itself apart over its response to the crisis in Gaza? And does the Met Police have the power to ban protests over Remembrance Weekend? Here to help us answer some of that will be our special guest, Zoe Grunwald of The New Statesman. Hi, Coco. Hi, Nish. How are you? I'm good. What is it? <laughs> We've we've already started in a bit of a giddy mood. Yeah, I know. So unfortunately, our producer Musty, uh, in as part of the briefing before we started, used the phrase "news belt," uh, which is a sort of technical term of a wrap up of a string of news stories. And for some reason, Coco just sort of said "news hat" <laughs> with no context, out of nowhere. It was. I don't know what. What can you explain to me? What you were possibly thinking at the time? Because all that came out of your mouth were the words "news hat." <laughs> It looked like the worst improv game I've ever seen in my in life. In hindsight, I can see how it all sounded a bit Gareth from The Office. Talk you know me through I mean? your thought process. He said news belt, yeah. and I thought that was a funny phrase. Yeah. Why not call it a news hat? <laughs> and so you just said news hat out loud. Yeah, yeah. People think you have no filter, and they don't know... The scale of the it. The scale they of it. The half of it. No, no, I don't have a filter. <laughs> Listen, uh, <laughs> listeners, uh, if you have a suggestion of what the news hat could possibly be, <laughs> please, by all means, uh, contact us. Um, what have you been up to? Uh, not a great deal, to be honest with you. How's your cat? How's my cat? Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, because of the sitting on her. Not necessarily even because of the sitting on her. I'm just inquiring generally about you know the well-being what? of your pet. Occasionally, people come up to me being like, oh, I sit soft. This is a reference to our conversation about how you sit down yes. that inadvertently resulted in us in YouGov commissioning a poll <laughs> to find out how, how Britain sits down. But we did a poll on Instagram yeah. and it all came out hard. And I think you you did something to that. What, you think there was election <laughs> interference? I think it was like Russian bot sort of style. <laughs> I think you got people to say that they sit hard. No collusion. <laughs> no. This is my January the 6th moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, it, it's been a big week in British politics though, mm. because it's the uh, state opening of Parliament. Um, Coco, you're a big fan of camp things. Yeah, OK. It doesn't get camper. Right. So I just, just want to say up front that this is the first King speech I've ever watched because I'm not a loser. <laughs> so. Well, and also, to be clear, you are under the age of about 60 because <laughs> yeah. there hasn't actually been, obviously for obvious reasons, a king's speech uh, since 1951. Do you know who the last man to deliver a king's speech was? The last king? No, it actually weirdly wasn't. It was a man called Gavin. 
It was oh. a man called Gavin Simmons, uh, who was the Lord Chancellor and stepped in in 1951 uh, because George VI was too ill. It was it was the year it was the year before he died. Right. Um, okay. And he uh, and he was too ill to actually do the speech. So the Lord Chancellor, Gavin Simmons, stepped in at the last minute. Oh, that's I mean, big day for Gavin, really. Yeah. I guess what I mean by the, the King's speech is I don't mean George. I just you mean, mean any the state any opening state of opening parliament, parliament and the so again for international listeners we should contextualize and also we will try and take this slow because I understand casually yes. when people from the UK talk about this we use terms that to outsiders will seem genuinely alarming <laughs> um so what we should say is that the state opening of parliament uh, happens every year and it's the official sitting of the new session of parliament um and it begins with the reigning monarch delivering a speech written by the government about the government's legislative priorities for the next year of Parliament. Right. And so in the Victorian era, they added a whole bunch of rituals to this process to symbolise the distinction between the house, the kind of political house, and the monarch. Um, and so some of those rituals border on... It depends on your reference, listeners. You know, some of you might be RuPaul's Drag Race. Some of you might be My Favourite Showgirls. Others might be just a good old-fashioned pantomime. So, for example, the Yeoman of the Guard arrives at 9am to carry out a ceremonial search for explosives. Uh, that's a tradition stretching back to the gunpowder plot of 1605. So everyone's just walking around being like, we don't forget Guy Fawkes. We will never forget <laughs> Guy Fawkes. <laughs> Um, they wear all of their regalia. I know you're a massive fan of the crown, aren't you, Nish? Listen, I love the fact that there's a man with a gold hat that gets to tell us what to do. <laughs> News hat. <laughs> See? It works. <laughs> Is this not a news hat? <laughs> news hat sounds like one of those weird American news channels that is very in favour of Donald Trump <laughs> and very against the COVID vaccine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, we should. Yeah, the the gold hat, uh, the gold hat is uh, a very big part of all of this. Um, and uh, the king and queen arrive in the diamond jubilee state coach, and the crowns and regalia travel to Westminster separately in their own carriage. So just to be clear, here's what happened this week. Poverty levels in the UK, according to the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, are simply not acceptable. Uh, this is a man uh, called Oliver de Schutter, um, who said that it was not acceptable that we have more than a fifth of the population in a rich country in the UK at risk of poverty, drawing on government data showing that 14.4 million people lived in relative poverty in 2021 to 2022, which is a million more than there were the previous year. And in that country, a man with a gold hat, whose hat had its own Uber, <laughs> told people that everything was going to be absolutely fine. Now you're That's probably Britain thinking... 2023, <laughs> yeah. baby. Now, you're probably thinking, well, why would the average British person put up with this? Well, the truth is, is that the average British person probably doesn't watch it. Unless, of course, they like to see the uh, absolutely stunning entrances by uh, people like Black Rod, who... Again, so this is the term that I think we need to immediately contextualise. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, it's the it, Black Rod is what we call the Usher of the Black Rod, um, who's an official who's actually in parliaments across the world because of the Commonwealth, which is a fun word for countries Britain used to own <laughs> that we've now turned into like we've tried to turn into like a fun gang of friends. Um, but elements of the Commonwealth have different feelings about that, um, and they're, so they're equivalent positions to Black Rod uh, in Australia, Canada, uh, and New Zealand. Um, and so the Black Rod itself is actually. Uh, a staff 
Um, and it's a sort of ebony staff uh, topped with like a golden mm. lion. And so it basically, Black Rod bangs on the door uh, with the staff. So the usher of Black Rod bangs on the door with Black Rod the staff. Black Rod! And right now we have our first female Black Rod. Mr. Speaker, the King commands this honourable house to attend His Majesty immediately in the House of Peers. The point of this is it's supposed to symbolise the Commons' independence from the Crown. So it's basically Black Rod saying to the House of Commons, the King is here to see you. And so it's supposed to be a kind of demarcation. It is objectively bananas. Now someone else has picked up a gold mace and uh, is leading people uh, out of the room. Um, So now uh, that's the formal invitation uh, to go to the room where the King's speech happens. And so now everybody's, uh, everybody's sort of awkwardly following... Uh, someone carrying a gold mace and someone carrying a uh, a big rod with a gold head. And now Starmer and Sunak are walking forward and they all sort of have to... The uh, government and opposition walk in parallel lines, so they have to make sort of deeply awkward small talk. As I say, as you watch that footage, it's probably important to reflect on 14.4 million people living in relative poverty in 2021 to 22. Um, I, I, hate, I hate to be a uh, buzzkill, but yeah. it, it, something about it sits uneasily with me aesthetically at the okay, moment. Okay, okay, but hypothetical, right? If we weren't facing this once-in-a-generation level of poverty, which is actually fittingly quite Victorian, given all of these traditions are Victorian, would you still be okay with the robes and the regalia? I think I find the whole thing quite deeply strange. You don't find it a bit Christmassy? <laughs> They'll wear red and white. Listen, I, I like Christmas, but on the 25th of December, Father Christmas doesn't get to dispense presents and then at the end say, and these will be the laws of the country for the next 12 months. I like Santa fine. I just don't consider him to be a legislator. Well, I think that tells you about Christmas in your house, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, look, in terms of the strange traditions around this, Mm. there is none stranger than an MP who is kept hostage at the palace while the king is at Westminster. Uh, This year it was a Tory MP and junior whip, Joe Churchill, uh, and again is a relic of historic distrust between Parliament and the Crown. Um, And the hostage basically has a drink with the Lord Chamberlain while they watch the ceremony uh, on the television. Uh, So now let's have a quick clip of the gold-hearted action. My lords and members of the House of Commons... It is mindful of the legacy of service and devotion to this country set by my beloved mother, the late Queen, that I deliver this, the first King's speech, in over 70 years. The impact of COVID and the war in Ukraine have created significant long-term challenges for the United Kingdom. That is why my government's priority is to make the difficult but necessary long-term decisions to change this country for the better. So, look, we should also say, in terms of a legislator, that was a slight missteer from me, because it isn't as if the king gets to write his own speech. This is a speech written for him by the government that he then has to absolutely milli vanilli uh, in front of the assembled lawmakers who've written it for them. Having said that, though, on on a genuine, sincere note... Like, isn't it fascinating that most people don't really watch this speech, that the king delivers whatever the government says, and they could get away with saying anything they like because they're probably not going to be in government next year. Yeah, this specific king's speech feels particularly empty. It carries huge, I guess, emotional significance because it is the first official king's speech, though uh, then Prince Charles uh, in 2022 
did step in uh, for his unwell mother uh, and deliver the speech, it was still officially the Queen's speech. So this does carry tremendous uh, emotional resonance. But in terms of actual meaning, given the state of this current government's position in the polls, it does feel slightly empty. But why then, given that he's got nothing to lose, did he go so hard on pedicabs? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know unlicensed pedicabs was an issue. A bill will be introduced to deal with the scourge of unlicensed pedicabs in London. Genuinely, I have yeah. used them. I haven't checked the license. They are the they are the high heel wearing woman's friend. You know, you come out of the bar, you've worn shoes, they're too uncomfortable. You cannot get the six minute walk to Tottenham Court Road. There they are. Rickshaw, Jason Derulo, very loud. I mean, what's not to love? This is the thing. So again, for <laughs> listeners outside of London, uh, the, the one of the pieces of legislation announced in the King's Speech, and bear in mind, given the series of crises the UK is facing, was that there will be harsh regulation on unlicensed pedicabs in London. Now, pedicabs appears to be some sort of fancy word for cycle rickshaw. Uh, which is what they are. And London, basically, the streets of central London, uh, on a Friday and Saturday night particularly, are full of these cycle rickshaws that have speaker systems in them. It's just non very LMFAO, loud, sort of, Yeah, it? pop music from about <laughs> 10 years Party ago. Party rockers gonna <laughs> ride tonight. It's just that, isn't it? And, and, and you could sort of sit in them and be cycled. We've all sat in one. In my case, we've all sat and looked as the driver suddenly realised their passenger was slightly heavier than they'd anticipated <laughs> on first glance and oh, seen a man sort of desperately struggle to move you along whilst like, listening to Drake quoted, at full volume. I know I quoted £10, but for you, sir, that'll be 20 <laughs> Um, but yeah, so apparently uh, the scourge of pedicabs was a legislative priority for the government. It, it, the fact that that was included as a legislative priority given the state of the United Kingdom at the moment, is a bit like a doctor prescribing athletes foot medication to a guy who's broken his jaw. Like, it it was an absolutely unfathomable priority. Listen, you know, licensing, I think, is a good thing. I didn't realise that those pedicabs were unlicensed. You know, anything carrying, you know, potentially vulnerable people late at night if they've had too much yeah. drink, of course there should be licensing. But you just think you have nothing to lose, mate. You're not getting in. <laughs> this is your time. This man with the hat will say anything you want him to say. And he's like, I've got an idea. Pedicabs. <laughs> <laughs> We should also mention that the Not My King protests uh, were made by about 200 members of the campaign group Republic who booed the king along part of the route uh, to Westminster. If you remember or think back or have a listen back to uh, our first full episode, we discussed the idea of uh, republicanism in the uh, light of the ascension of King Charles. Yeah, and look, the interesting thing is uh, that they were right at the front of the route, so they were quite visible and presumably audible uh, to the king. And whilst again, it, it doesn't, it's sort of swallowed up in the general pageantry and ceremony of the day. It, it definitely feels like a level of public hostility that his mother wasn't necessarily uh, exposed to. Coming up in a moment, we'll get into some of the actual content of the King's speech. Plus, we'll talk about Labour's response to Gaza and the plans for protests over Remembrance Weekend with our guest, Zoe Grunwald of The New Statesman. But first, a PSUK shout out to the Waterday newsletter team who just hit 200,000 subscribers. Crooked Media's Waterday newsletter is a go-to source for the day's latest news from a US slant sent straight to your inbox every night. And if you're not already subscribed, head over to crooked.com forward slash daily.
The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel is the labor party in danger of tearing itself apart over its response to the Israel Gaza conflict over the last couple of episodes we've spoken about the difficulties that the party is having in reaching a unified position leader Keir Starmer's attempts to hold his MPs to the party line of calling for a humanitarian pause rather than a ceasefire looked to be falling apart after frontbench MP Imran Hussein quit over his desire to strongly advocate for a ceasefire in Gaza Over the last few weeks, we've seen a growing number of local councillors quit the party and more MPs join the call for a ceasefire in defiance of the leadership. But the resignation of Mr Hussein, who was the shadow minister for the New Deal for Working People, takes the split in the party well and truly out in the open. Here to help us work out what's going on is Zoe Grunwald, politics and policy correspondent of The New Statesman. Zoe, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, How significant is this most recent development for the Labour Party? Well, so clearly this is one of the most significant challenges to Keir Starmer's authority yet. Um, At present, the Labour Party has actually been pretty good at keeping party discipline in check. Actually, very much to the frustration of quite a lot of journalists in that there is very rarely news on the Labour side (laughs) unless they want to make news because nobody ever wants to break the party line because there is absolutely this culture of discipline at the very top. Um, But obviously, as soon as the uh, terror attack happened in Israel and and the resulting war between Israel and Hamas, we've seen a real challenge to Starmer's ability to keep the party in check because this is a huge issue for Labour, not just because it's an incredibly difficult political, geopolitical situation, but also because of the allegations of anti-Semitism that have plagued the Labour Party for many years um, and Starmer's um, desire to move away from that. Um, We know that the party is fairly split over Labour's line, which is that Labour will not be calling for a ceasefire, but instead be calling for something, a sort of humanitarian pause, which is one of those phrases that's quite hard to define. So Zoe, one thing that I am slightly confused about is why calling for a ceasefire is so controversial. You know, as a citizen, I want a ceasefire and I use the language ceasefire, not just because I obviously want there to be a pause in the shooting, in the bombing for humanitarian aid to get in there, but also to register my desire for a a kind of peace process to begin, not just a pause and then more fighting. I want to see a pause and actually moving in towards a peace process. So that doesn't feel that different from a humanitarian pause either. We had Starmer saying recently that he would use the pause to negotiate a peace. Is this a crisis of language? Why is this word ceasefire so difficult for the Labour Party? 
So I think what's particularly difficult about this for Starmer is the the suggestion that if he was to back calls for a ceasefire, he would be essentially backing calls for Israel to lay down their defensive, which is what they're calling it, a defensive campaign in Gaza to wipe out Hamas, to make sure that none of this happens again and to and to get back to, to free the hostages. Um, and it would almost be, you know, in, in, it would be seen as asking Israel to let Hamas regroup or to, you know, stop defending themselves. And obviously leaders are saying over the world, you know, Israel have a right to defend itself against terror. Um, so ceasefire in that in that sense, that particular word is very provocative. But as the, obviously, as you say, the humanitarian pause aspect, there doesn't seem to be a lot that actually differentiates mm. the two. Um, I think the the pause sounds less permanent than a ceasefire. You know, it sounds like this is a chance to open the borders, get aid in, get refugees out, whatever needs to be done. But you're right, if time is then being taken to come to a diplomatic solution to the fighting, then it's almost like, why don't we call a spade a spade? Mm. I think what Starmer's doing here, and you have to remember, he's it actually doesn't really matter in terms of what's actually going on, what the Labour leader thinks, because he's not in control of foreign policy. But you have to remember that Starmer is basically a prime minister in waiting. It's generally accepted that unless something drastic happens between now and the next general election, Labour will form the next government. And so it's really important for Starmer that he acts like a leader. And with Israel being so closely aligned to uh, the UK and the US... Um, I think he's really keen to take the position of a sort of strong statesman rather than calling for something that would be different from what the government is currently calling from. And we have to remember as well, the government will take any opportunity they can to attack the opposition. So if he puts a lot of water between himself and the government here, um, then he opens himself up to scrutiny and criticism from the Conservatives who will say, there he is, not defending Israel, not defending one of our closest allies. Do you really want this man in charge of foreign policy? And we know that was a criticism that was quite heavily levied against Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. But you're right. I mean, you kind of get the sense that the party is concerned about this, that there is definitely a moral argument for a ceasefire. I think we should also say, especially, you know, organisations like Amnesty that are explicitly calling for a ceasefire. One of the things that is a contingent part of that is negotiating the safe release of hostages. So, I mean, this really is a ceasefire fire is also about protecting the Israeli lives that are under risk as much as it is with Palestinians. You know, it's, it's a, it is a, there should be a unified humanitarian case for a ceasefire for the benefit of the entire region. But also in terms of international leaders, Zoe, how important do you think it is for Starmer to remain aligned with Joe Biden? Because the language that Starmer's using is essentially a copy and paste of everything that Biden has said in the last few weeks. Yeah, I think that's essentially it. We know that Starmer and Rachel Reeves and Yvette Cooper and um, David Lammy have all been shoring up those international relationships. We saw that Rachel Reeves recently went to the US and she, you know, she spoke to the administration there. They're all basically acting like they are this government in waiting. You know, they're 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 playing dis- diplomacy now. Um, you know, David Lammy's having conversations with the EU about closer ties. You know, this is very much something that the Labour Party are are working on because they are very much of the view that they will be probably taking a seat in number 10 uh, in the next year or so. And what you know, we know that the UK and the US have this special relationship. It's vital now, especially having left the EU, that we keep those ties close for you know our economy. We we know Sunak's been trying his hardest to try and get a trade deal with Biden. Um, you know, this is absolutely something that that 
the UK government is is really keen on and, and Starmer's no different. So it's absolutely imperative, I think, that Starmer feels that they have to be aligned with America in terms of foreign policy as well. Um, so I just want to pivot um, to the upcoming Weekend of protests. Um, we've seen political pressure building all week over the prospect of another huge uh, pro-Palestinian protest taking place in London over Remembrance Weekend. I feel personally there doesn't seem to be any dissonance in uh, marking a celebration of peace and the end of war by having an anti-war march. That seems to me to be two things that are in complete alignment in terms of their values. But uh, Rishi Sunak uh, and uh, his Home Secretary, Suella Bradman, have criticised the timing of the march uh, because the 11th of November is Armistice Day and have put pressure on the Met to ban the march. So what is the point of this? Because they, <laughs> the Met police can only enforce the laws of the country as they stand. So when Sunak says that he's you know going to have to sort of take action if the Met police don't crack down on the protests... What is the point of that? Is this just him just playing to the base? Uh, yeah, and I think that's all that the Conservatives really have left now. What we're really seeing a lot of from Sunak is very little substantial policy. And anything that is substantial is just red meat. So interfering in the police's operational independence, evoking this sort of culture war over what people can and can't do on Armistice Day, is, you know, it is really ridiculous. As you say, there are no powers. Just because you don't like the fact that someone might protest on Armistice Day doesn't give you the right to then stop it. And they, of course, well know that. But by bringing this to the attention of the public, they're trying to make it an issue. And I think what the Conservatives are really trying to do a lot of at the minute is to stoke up anger uh, amongst the electorate to get people looking at issues and going, oh, yeah, that really annoys me. And I actually think this potentially could make things a lot worse and I and the police have now said there is no mechanism to ban this gathering um, unless we get sort of considerable intelligence that this there's a threat to life or a real substantial threat of violence um, this gathering has to go ahead and they of course knew that would be the advice and I completely understand why people would want to keep Armistice Day sacred but we have Remembrance Sunday the next day the protest groups have already said they're not going to do it until a couple of hours after the two minute silence they're going to avoid Whitehall you know they're really trying their best to yeah. make this as respectful as possible there's no logical reason for starting a fight over this. It's just red meat. Um, and it is all the Conservative government have left to offer, I think. But I just on everyone's favourite, Suella, <laughs> it, I, I read a report uh, today that there are rumours that she's now just actively trying to get sacked because um, we should also say that uh, she's been really stoking uh, a lot of these conversations around these marches. Um, but we also we also saw this week Suella Braverman uh, make comments about homelessness being a, a lifestyle choice uh, and float the idea that charities would be fined for providing tents to homeless people, uh, which was uh, rumoured to be a policy that was going to be in the King's Speech. Now, it wasn't actually in the King's Speech in the end. It, between that, between her comments about protest, it, it made sense to me when I read these reports that she is now just trying to get fired. Uh, we're in a situation now where the Home Secretary is essentially just agitating for their next job. Uh, surely that is sort of untenable. Is Sunak going to have to do something about Suella? 
so there's the argument that Suella actually has served Sunak quite well in that she's kept the right of the party on his side. Um, and she also appeals to the very sort of um, the, the kind of right wing base of voters who do kind of like the stuff she says. Um, and he gets it to be said in his name without him actually saying it. So he can kind mm. of have this, you know, this reasonable doubt in voters' minds that he doesn't really think that. It's Suella who thinks that. Um, but I think you're right in that, I mean, I actually think Suella has been trying to get fired for a long time. She has always been daring Sunak to to get rid of her. Um to sort of assert her power. I mean, there have been several situations now where she has said stuff. So it's not just the comments this week, but she did that speech in the US about yeah. uh, immigration being a hurricane and, and, you know, all these kind of really incendiary things. And her comments this week, not only about the protest, um, you know, calling it hate marches, but also to uh, suggest that homelessness, you know, is a, or living in a tent as a homeless person is a lifestyle choice. I mean... You know, it's so um, just provocative. Does she want to get sacked? Because then she can turn around and all her failures, she can lay at someone else's door. Because it's very easy to take on a brief that is mainly kind of crime and immigration and all these sticky issues where the government has been failing for the last 13 years and say, I'm going to fix it. But if she walks away, she can say, I really wanted to fix it, but it was Sunak who was stopping me from fixing it. And if right. you allow me to be prime minister, I will push to leave the European Convention on Human Rights and I will get that flight taken off from Rwanda. You know, all those things that actually she knows she can't do because it's not mm. just Sunak. There's like loads of reasons why those things don't work. Most of them just are unworkable. But it's almost like she's she's already presenting herself as that individual who would go a step further if she wasn't being tethered by the government line. Well, look, on the subject of law and order, it was a significant theme in the King's speech. Mm. Uh, you know, there was many things that were covered off. One of them was uh, whole life sentences for the worst murders, measures to force criminals to appear in the dock for sentencing. Uh, we discussed that, didn't we, in the episode about the Lucy Letby case. I mean, what was your reading of it? Does such a thin legislative agenda signal an early election to you? Um, so I think in that there was not really much going on there, you definitely get the feeling that they are ready for a general election in that they don't really have much else to offer. So <laughs> considering con- considering Sunak presented this as long-term decisions to build a brighter future, I am racking my brain, really racking my brain to find some long-term decisions in there. Tougher sentencing, more prison terms, great. We have a prison estate with only 550 places left in it. Right. Um, and most of those prisons yeah. are falling apart. You know, it's all of these kind of little tiny drops of policy that actually don't have, won't make any substantial impact to the issues this country are facing. And, you know, there is, having said that, there is the autumn statement coming up. There'll be the spring budget. Um, there will obviously see a manifesto published sometime in the next year. You know, this is, I'm sure Sunak's allies would argue, going to be his chance to actually set out a substantial plan with a mandate for, you know, real reform or real, you know, mechanisms that can really change the country's prospects. But I just think, you know, Sunak has never really offered anything in in the way of vision. And if you look at who he is, you know, he's a Goldman Sachs hedge fund manager. Mm. He doesn't have creativeness or vision in his CV like he is a fixer and he's an analyst and he might look at risk and weigh up you know the the political ramifications and then make decisions but 
in what this country need, which is actually quite a lot of substantial change, I don't think he really knows how to offer that. And then, of course, he's also hampered by backbenchers who are obsessed with tax cuts, which means that any kind of room for the government to actually create reform or change through investment is really difficult. Let's see this as a kind of part one and a kind of tone setter for something that will eventually culminate in an election manifesto. So one of the key things uh, that they did set out was this kind of broad hostility towards net zero or certainly Mm. broad apathy uh, towards uh, net zero. Um, But obviously that is in of itself quite strange for a couple of reasons. One, because one of the things that they announced was about licensing for oil and gas in the North Sea, which the government is able to do every year anyway. It hasn't actually changed any policy that doesn't already exist. But that's why it's perfect for Sunak to announce it, because he can announce a thing knowing it's already there, but you didn't know. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? He doesn't need to create anything. He cannot create anything. And by doing that particular thing, he's basically throwing the ball into Keir Starmer's court by being like, if you're prime minister, will you reverse this? Will you reverse all these new jobs for people? You know, some of it is trap setting for Labour as well, I think. Mm. But he is is there something basically quite strange, though, about a king who really, if he's known for anything outside of being the Queen's son, is known for quite a strong commitment towards environmental and climate change policy. He's been quite a sort of open and public advocate, certainly one that I think has at times sort of stretched the boundaries of royal convention. How basically weird is it to watch somebody that spent most of their life advocating for the climate be dragged into a position where they're just saying, well, it'll probably all be fine. Cars are good. (laughs) This bill will support the future licensing of new oil and gas fields, helping the country to transition to net zero by 2050 without adding undue burdens on households. Yeah, I mean, it was it was strange. And I think it was one of the things that most journalists would be very closely watching King Charles's face when he read out the new oil and gas licensing. Because as you say, he is a king far more than um, the Queen, who has made his political views on certain things quite well known. Um, I always, I actually, I'm not um, really a fan of of the monarchy um, or the royal family, but I did. You're on the right podcast. I did have a (laughs) Yeah, but I did have quite a bit more respect for him when he there was that video clip of him meeting Liz Truss and he goes, oh dear, back again. You know, it was very, <laughs> like you could see it was written yeah. all over his face, exactly how he felt about her. We shouldn't really know uh, because of the way our, you know, our country runs. We shouldn't really know what it is the monarch is, is thinking. Um, but we do because he is a slightly more progressive king. And I think also in the sense that Actually, the environment wasn't this politicised before he was Mm. king. You know, most parties were aligned in the fact that absolutely we have to get towards net zero. And although that is broadly still the government's position, I mean, there has been so much anti-net zero rhetoric that it has become quite heavily politicised. You know, it's become another cultural um, battle. So, uh, but that is uh, British politics. 
Well, on the subject of strange things in British politics, <laughs> the COVID inquiry is continuing. This week, one of Boris Johnson's closest advisers, Lord Adney Lister, confirmed reports that the then Prime Minister offered to be injected with COVID-19 <laughs> live on TV to prove it wasn't harmful and that he did recall Johnson saying he'd rather let the bodies pile high than go back into lockdown in September 2020. Here's Labour leader Keir Starmer asking him explicitly about that at Prime Minister questions in April 2021. Mr Speaker, it was reported this week, including in the Daily Mail, the BBC and ITV, backed up by numerous sources, that at the end of October the Prime Minister said he would rather have, and I quote, bodies pile high than implement another lockdown. Can the Prime Minister tell the House categorically, yes or no, did he make those remarks or remarks to that effect? Prime Minister. No, Mr Speaker. And I think what I think uh, the, the right honourable gentleman is a, is a lawyer, I'm given to understand. I think uh, that if he's going to repeat allegations like that, uh, he should come to this House and substantiate those allegations and say, and say where he heard them and who, who, exactly, who exactly is supposed to have said those who exactly is supposed to have said those things mr speaker so zoe what did you make of this week's uh, i wouldn't say revelations but they're not revelations they're, they're confirmations, confirmations yeah. of what many of us already knew uh, what what do you what do you make of all of this well i think you're right i think although there have been over the last couple of weeks with the covid inquiry some really interesting lines that have come out that have been extraordinary to read you know the whatsapp messages and the misogyny and the comments from the prime minister and the, you know the lack of empathy for for old people but this is a conservative government whose core voter base are the old um and it was extraordinary to me that because i've always viewed the conservative party as a party that doesn't care about young people but now it's well they don't care about anyone <laughs> you know they really don't it's if they if they don't even care about their sort of core voter base I don't know who they represent. And it makes you just realise that it really is about the economy for them. And I think that seeing that callousness play out, you know, where it was like, well, who cares if all these sort of over 80s die? They're going to die anyway. Is so devoid of empathy. It's just really um, extraordinary. Unfortunately for Sunak, he was also part of that administration. And I think it's going to play very, very badly with voters. And it has given the Labour Party an excellent line of attack because their hands are, are clean in this. They weren't part of the government at the time. So they've basically, you know, there's, there's a couple of messages now that have basically been uh, to the extent of, you know, we are totally effed, you know, written down on a piece of paper and shown as evidence. I mean, that's that's the new, sorry, there's no money left. Though, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I would trot that out. I'd post that through every voter's door um, if I were in Labour HQ at, uh, election time. So, yeah, I think it could be the kiss of death for the Conservatives. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you sort of by way of wrapping up the chat, Zoe. Um, I have been literally wrong about every single election <laughs> since 2010. So it's I, I, it's I started to feel, I started to sort of see myself as being a kind of like reverse Paul the Octopus from the <laughs> football tournament when he was guessing correctly who was going to win all the games. Like I, I, I seem to be the sort of kiss of death for everybody except Sadiq Khan um, uh, mm. it, it, with his London mayoral electoral victories. But like, it, it, so 
I'm looking at this thinking, there's no way they're going to win this election. But then I think about the past 13 years, and I think, well, that just definitely means Sunak's going to have a 150-seat majority. Like, is any of this actually going to work? So I think... I don't think what Sunak is offering, which is mostly kind of cultural stuff, as we've discussed, will be enough to combat the damage that has been done to the economy, which most people put at the door of Tory infighting and the Liz Trust administration. And I also don't think it will over, I don't think it will compensate for COVID and the response to COVID, particularly Partygate and now the COVID inquiry. I think they are all such significant things. One, you know, the economy is that people vote with their pockets, you know, people want to feel better off. And also the economy is the thing that the Conservatives are known for doing well. So if they're doing badly, it just feels like, what's the point of voting Conservative, right? But then when you add to that, sleaze, scandal, infighting, people partying while they let your grand die, I just don't I just don't see how you can come back from that. And I think that's what's different. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We there are so many events that have happened in the last decade that we didn't predict. I didn't mm. didn't think Trump was gonna win, didn't think we'd leave the EU, you know. But there have been significant events since. The pandemic, you know, was a significant trauma point for everybody in the UK, everyone across the world. And then to have the economy, which was such an important thing for the Conservatives, to be trashed quite so badly by the Conservatives mm. themselves. I just think you can't escape that. Mm. And I don't think vote, voters have short memories, but I don't think they will have short enough memories in the next year to forget that. Yeah. So you can play politics with the environment, but I don't think it's enough. I don't think it stands up to scrutiny either. So I just, yeah, I, I think they're done. And oh, the only thing I think that could change it is actually if Labour starts to fall apart, which is why the next few months are really, really important for Labour. But actually, we might have underestimated how much ill feeling there is towards the Conservatives mm. across the country. Listen, thank you so much, Zoe. You've been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you very thank much you for, for your time. Me. I enjoyed it. And also providing, I guess, the Labour Party with their next electoral slogan What's the point in voting <laughs> Conservative? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.
Coco, mm-hmm. I know that much like Bonnie Tyler, you're always holding out for a hero. Who's your PSUK Hero of the Week? So my Hero of the Week is someone you probably know, but that's not related to this. This is We, we don't do nepotism here on Pod Save the UK. This person very much deserves it because they took something bad and made something good out of it. It is Joe Lysett. Mummy! <laughs> that's how Joe refers to himself and how he signs off his text messages. Mummy! <laughs> <laughs> my my mother is not saved as mummy in my phone, but Joe is saved as mummy in my phone. And if I get a text message from him, it makes me look like I'm a, a very strange posh boy with a, some <laughs> borderline Oedipal oh, okay. issues. So, so mummy is in order that you look silly when you look at your phone? No, mummy is how Joe refers to himself just in life. Right. Mummy's, <laughs> mummy's going to the shops, mummy's doing this, mummy's that. Okay. Okay. So earlier this week, as we discussed, Suella Braverman suggested that homelessness could be a lifestyle choice and said she wanted to prevent charities from providing tents to rough sleepers. This is what Joe posted on Saturday in response to that. My old friend Suella Braverman has described rough sleeping as a lifestyle choice. I always thought lifestyle choices were things such as cargo pants, fishing and decorating your bathroom with a bowl of potpourri. Let's see if this image I found on Google described as wooden botanical fragrant potpourri bowl with lemon can raise £50,000 for homelessness charity Crisis UK. NB, remember to add gift aid because then Suella's government have to give an additional 25%. Lol. Then on Tuesday morning, he posted this message. I woke up this morning to see that a picture of a bowl of potpourri I posted just over two days ago has raised £50,000 for crisis. A huge thank you to everyone who donated for their generosity. Of course, my main thanks must go to Suella. Without your lifestyle choice of being callous and cruel towards the most vulnerable people in society, none of this would have happened. He added, there is another choice coming to all of us fairly soon. It's called an election. Best of luck with it, babe. XOXOXO. Lovely from Joey. Absolutely lovely. 50 grand for crisis. That's great. A couple of days as well. And did those people get their potpourri? I don't think they actually get the potpourri. Potpourri? Yeah. That's how we're saying it. I think it's potpourri. (laughs) Okay. I think of it as being like a thing that was in people's houses in the 80s and 90s. Right. I think it's like dried up flowers. Right, right. To make your house. But to me, if I smell it, it's like. I'm going around my aunt's in 1991. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've seen potpourri. In the, potpourri sounds... I, it, I, do, I genuinely don't think it's something that people really have that much anymore. Right, okay. I think that's what's fun about it. Okay, that's good. Um, <laughs> in a kind of subcategory of Hero of the Week, I'd just like to briefly thank the staff at Croydon University Hospital uh, who looked after my grandmother this week. It's been a slightly stressful week for my family, but... Um, as always, God bless the NHS. Well, look, from the best of us to the worst of us, who's yeah. your villain of the week? Right, OK. My villain of the week is Michelle Moan. Now, Michelle Moan is a Tory peer and a lingerie entrepreneur who has finally admitted her links to the firm PPE MedPro three years after the Daily Mirror wrote claims which she repeatedly denied about her and her husband's involvement with the firm. Uh, now, MedPro won a £200 million government contract during the COVID pandemic, to supply millions of face masks and sterile surgical gowns, but £122 million worth of the product that it supplied turned out to be useless. 
Now, the thing that makes this even worse is that these contracts were processed through the Department of Health's VIP high priority lane, which fast-tracked offers of PPE from companies with connections to the Conservative Party or the government. In January last year, the High Court ruled that the use of the high priority lane was unlawful. After three years of continual denial from their lawyers, a spokesperson for the couple told The Guardian... Like many other peers and MPs on the high-priority lane, Moan acted as an intermediary liaison between PPE MedPro and the Cabinet Office slash Department of Health and Social Care. Um, In April 2022, Moan uh, and her husband's properties in London and the Isle of Man were raided by the National Crime Office, suspecting criminal offences committed in the procurement of PPE contracts. And in December last year, it was announced that Moan was taking a leave of absence from the House of Lords in order to clear her name of the allegations that have unjustly (laughs) been levelled against her. So having denied it... uh, for three years, this week, she has admitted to it. The sort of stench around the PPE processes shows you how much we still need to kind of untangle about what happened in and around the government uh, in 2020 and 2021. As with a lot of things with the pandemic, understandably, people can't really focus on it because the collective trauma is almost too recent. But I think it's really, really important that things like the COVID inquiry are happening. And it's really, really important that some accountability is coming to Michelle Moan if she, as is being alleged, enriched herself using the VIP lane. I can't believe that I have to... The only little bit of justice I can get around this situation is me waiting for Michelle Moan to go onto some Channel 4 reality TV show yeah, with some member calls yeah. him a twat. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Something's going to be done about this. We've sort of been treated to the spectacle over the last few weeks of Matt Hancock going on an SAS reality show uh, and being sort of called names ritualistically. But um, I, I think, to be honest, I'd rather he wasn't getting paid to do it. I would happily donate my time pro bono to call Matt Hancock a fucking arsehole to his face. <laughs> I would, I would, I'm willing to do that out of the goodness of my own heart. I'll do it gratis. Listen, uh, let's dip straight into the PSUK mailbag. Yes. So we've had a message in from an anonymous listener relating to my hero of the week in our previous episode. They say, hi, I reckon you could have given RMT, that's the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, a bit more credit in reversing the ticket office closures. You focused a lot on the consumer side of things. That is important. But in this case, there was also the action from the workers who had their jobs threatened and the rest of the workers in their union striking against the proposal. They won this government U-turn and we should all thank them for protecting our services and support them in their other disputes about pay and conditions. So listen, anonymous listener, you didn't need to be anonymous. I agree. I'm totally in agreement with you. What I hoped from that segment was to highlight a really good example where the public and the unions and even some politicians work well together because that is the perfect synergy. I think we can all agree that Pod Save the UK is a very big fan of trade unions and it's not a competition niche. But I am actually a member of not one, but two trade unions. You're the queen of the unions. Oh, yes. We love unions and you should definitely join one. That is the official position of PSUK. (laughs) Um, Elizabeth has WhatsApped us. Hi, Nish and Coco. I love the show. My parents put me onto it and I've listened to all of the episodes. Unfortunately, I've got nothing interesting to say about them and I'm here to ask for something. (laughs) I absolutely respect (laughs) the honesty of this. I'm 13 and I work on my school's newspaper up in a town near Glasgow. We thought it'd be really great if we could get an interview or even some writing slash podcasting advice, seeing as you're doing so well. Keep up the show, Elizabeth. That is absolutely fantastic. And Elizabeth, we will do that interview. We yeah. are, we will we will work it out and we will make it work and we will do your school newspapers interview. 
I think people genuinely are. That's going to be a grilling, I think. Oh my goodness. We're going to get absolutely what, flame grilled. Giving... Yeah, we're going to get flame grilled, man. <laughs> we're going to get absolutely flame grilled. <laughs> the uh, audience of 13 year old journalists is, that's going to be. That's going to be tougher than any discussion program you and I have been involved yeah, in. Yeah, Elizabeth, yeah. we will absolutely do that. We remain thrilled yes. that young people listen to this podcast and listen to the political ramblings of two geriatric millennials <laughs> as they complain about the Fast and the Furious franchise and compare notes on how to sit down. Um, um, <laughs> thank you very much for writing, Elizabeth. And we will, we're going to do this. We're, we're absolutely going to do this. One, one, 100%. Although I would say, like, as far as podcasting advice, from what I can tell, it's the only useful <laughs> advice I could give is get good producers who do all of the work for you and hope former operatives of the Democratic Party kick some cash your way. <laughs> Um, but yeah, genuinely, we would be we would be absolutely thrilled to do that. So we were also talking about whether it's possible to fancy a politician last week, um, and someone got in touch with us to discuss it. So at one midnight fish got in touch to say being attracted to politicians may be a separate sexual orientation, and definitely not. My own. Having said that, I may be tempted by Angela Rayner or Hamza Youssef. Uh, so at One Midnight Fish, we're actually having Hamza Youssef on the show in the near future. We'll be uh, sure to put in a word for you. The thing, what I like most about this comment yeah. is it really reminds me of a chat I had with my, this is 100% true, my GP a couple of days ago. And my GP was like, do you smoke, Miss Khan? And yeah. I was like, oh, no, not at all. Although I do occasionally have a cigarette. And he just laughed down the phone. <laughs> he was like... Well, that, that means you're a smoker, mate. <laughs> and it's just funny because on this comment, uh, you know, they write in to say, oh, it's definitely not my, it's not not my sexual orientation. I couldn't possibly fancy a politician. But I would say. For the benefit of people listening to the podcast, when Coco said, I'm not a smoker, I'm afraid I was not able to disguise my face. I've been at the public, I've seen you smoke. <laughs> Well, I don't consider myself a smoker, and that's really all that matters. You have the occasional cigarette. It's an emotional truth, Nish, that I am a non-smoker. Uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 Internationally, that's plus 44 We'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed on this episode, or you can send in a question about British politics or suggest something you'd like us to cover. That's it. Send something in about questions about British politics. Send something you'd like to cover. Stick it all in the news hat and we'll have a rummage around. Um, I had an idea for a joke, but I'm not sure if it works. Here you go. You can leave your news hat on. Is <laughs> it good? Does it work? Let's end the show okay. now. <laughs> Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop with additional production support from Annie Keats Thorpe. Video editing was by Dan Hodgson and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Degahi. The executive producers are Anushka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're Pod Save the UK, all one word. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursday on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Stick it in the news hat. <laughs> oh, God.
If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.